Hello, you lover of art and architecture and design. In today's episode, all things Inuit and Inuktitut. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, a new podcast coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. If you're tickled by architecture and the beauty that designers create, you're in the right place. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast that builds on all that has been accomplished by the first architecture faculty in Western Canada. It was founded 101 years ago. This podcast is created by the students, the faculty of the university, and by many people who care deeply about our built environment. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. Today we're going to travel from the prairies and beyond to Nunatsiavut, to Nunavut and Nunavik, all of which are part of Nunungat, the collective name the Inuit use to include all Inuit territories. Today, though, we're staying in Winnipeg, the new home of Hamayuk, the about-to-open world's largest collection of Inuit art, which we have been calling to this point the Inuit Art Centre. This is where the art of Nunungat has found a home. Until this week, we had referred to the centre by its working title, that is, until the Winnipeg Art Gallery announced its official name, Hamayuk. To set the mood, I'm opening today's episode with the jerry cans of Iqaluit singing and throat singing in Inuktitut. The Juno-nominated jerry cans have been touring the world since 2013. We're listening to their hit, Yuk Yuk, which means in Inuktitut, winter. Today we're joined by two Winnipeggers who have played a huge role in getting Haumayok designed and built for us here in Winnipeg. Here they are. Hello, Herb Enns. Hi, Terry. And hello, Michael Robertson. Hi, Terry. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab. So nice to have you with us. Michael, if I could start with you, Michael Malson gives a lot of credit to Sibinal for its involvement in the uh, Inuit Art Centre, or I guess we should now be calling it, since they launched the official name this week, Haumayuk. What involvement did you have in the centre? I'm the architect of records, so all the drawings under my professional seal and my supervision. So I was the delivery arm for the project. We drew it and delivered the construction with PCL. So what does that mean in practical terms as far as your relationship with Michael Maltzen went? It's really, really close. So we were in daily communication with Michael's studio to try to make sure that we understand the design intent for the project and for the details so that when we do the construction details, they align to that same design intent so that we don't lose the vision of the project through an inarticulate translation into construction. And Herb, if I could turn to you, what role did you play in choosing Michael Malson's firm as the one? 
I remember getting a call eight and a half years ago from George Baird, former dean of the School of Architecture at the University of Toronto and also head of the Department of Architecture at Harvard. George and I have done a number of things together. And he called me up, it was early July, I was out at the island, I took the call and he said he'd like me to be part of this, the competition committee. He had discussed this with Stephen. Stephen's idea was to have three architects on a committee, one local, and then three board members. Bridget Shin came on board, and Miro from uh, Montreal, the then director of the Canadian Centre for Architecture. And of course, Bridget is well known for her absolutely extraordinary design work over decades in Toronto. We helped guide the process. The first batch of proposals that came in were, there were 64 in all, and they were four or five pagers plus a CV, something like that, a letter of interest. All the top names in the world were represented. It would be difficult to find a, an important architect who was not included in the competition. It was going to be five, we decided it should be six, and then we had intensive interviews with each of the six shortlisted candidates. I remember Michael in particular because being unanimous decision, while less known than some of the enormously powerful, shall we say, companies from around the world. He had done this fantastic inner city arts project in a really dead-end part of East LA, which I eventually visited. It's, it's really a tour de force and public good. And so he knew the education side of the program. And also, he really concentrated on the vision and mission of the Winnipeg Art Gallery when he spoke to us, which seems to be such an obvious thing. But he was very careful to address the committee on their terms. Michael Robertson, in what way did Sibinel initially get involved in this? Uh, we were brought on to be the local architect for Maltzen. And who chose you? Uh, Maltzen chose us. And do you know why he turned to you? Primarily local reputation. I think he heard good things about our firm and our ability to deliver quality architecture, do quality construction documents and delivery for large institutional projects. So it was a good fit for them to have us. And did they actually phone you, email you with this idea? Uh, yes. I believe they called George back in, it would have been 2012. And then Michael, when did you get involved? Uh, was it after 2012? Yeah, it was once the job went back into heavy production about five, six years ago, when the funding was largely secured and it restarted in earnest. It was about three years of kind of slow starts and then it really got going and that's when I came onto the project. When you saw the proposal, what kind of things went through your mind in terms of the challenges of this particular project? <laughs> excitement. It, absolute excitement. I mean, the... The challenges are what makes everything worthwhile. Everything worth having has a price. And seeing something you didn't know how to do is what you go into architecture to do. To think about something differently, to develop new details, to invent new ways of putting and assembling these pieces together. So it's just pure excitement. That little bit of fear is what kind of gives the, 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 the spice in a way. So those of us who are civilians to architecture, I mean, I'm fascinated by it and have been my whole life, but I don't know how a firm such as yours works with a firm such as his on a daily basis. What are you doing together? 
Well, you know, we didn't know either at the time, Terry, because we hadn't filled that role before. Usually it's more collaborative on the design side, but, you know, Michael's vision is really quite singular in a, in a lot of ways. And so our job is really to support and explore the design vision that he has. What does that mean? Um, so they'll work on models, both mainly physical, that translates into three-dimensional models. And then they'll flip those over to us and ask about what some of the opportunities are for the realization of that uh, and things that they should keep in mind as, as they explore those ideas, what are the technical challenges they should look out for and how they might be managed. So that in the next iteration of that model, they can start to incorporate those uh, in a way that has the vision increasingly realized throughout the process. The climate in Winnipeg, I expect that Michael Maltzen might not have built for this kind of climate before. What kind of challenges did that present? I, I think no one has, almost nobody has. Because we're here, we take for granted the building and assemblage in this place, but it is one of the hardest places to build in the world with the swings in temperature from plus 30 to minus 40. And so a good example of the challenge was were things like the skylights that Herb sent that email out on. We have a gallery that has to be 50% relative humidity, plus or minus 2%, and 20 degrees Celsius, plus or minus 1 degree. If we have a skylight in 50% relative humidity, a regular skylight is going to condense and freeze. Absolutely. And we have 22 skylights in the gallery. And so the challenge there was to realize Michael's vision for the skylights and Stephen's vision for the skylights in a way that would perform technically, right? So we had to have a custom skylight design, pump dry air, that took all these technical measures to make sure it was realistic without those becoming the expression of the architecture, which is what they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to fade away and let the architecture be what it is. So what did you learn from your engagement in this process with Michael Molson? A lot. I think Michael really pushed himself on this project, which meant he he had to push us. So we learned to do a project in a way that we never would have done it before. So what do you mean? So we normally, I think coming out of the school here, we really do work in this more modernist tradition in Winnipeg, where the fitments of a building become a necessary part of the expression and design of the project. Whereas Michael's is much freer in the conception of the idea of the feeling of space. And so he's never constrained in his idea of a space about, well, this calm grid should be like X, right? To be efficient and expressive. No, if that doesn't fit into how the space should feel and be perceived in that concept, he's not going to think about it like that. And so this structure has to do gymnastics to support the right expression versus the expression being part of the structural gymnastics. We never, in our normal practice, and I think most places, most firms that practice here wouldn't do, you know, 10-meter cantilevers with, you know, four-story high granite walls and, you know, 20 skylights, two-story glass vaults, <laughs> monolithic glass, right? <laughs> so just, you know, learning that you can do 20-foot high uh, curved glass and sourcing that and finding that and detailing it so that's environmentally separated for a vault. The list of things we learned and invented for this project goes on and on, Terry. I don't know if I could separate out one good one, except that we had to invent everything we drew on this building anew to make sure that we realized Michael's vision in the best possible way. So I know it's a rambling answer, but it is, we learned something on every piece of this, of this building. In what way did you 
change Michael Maltzen's project? Oh, I think I, I'd like to hope that we didn't. I honestly, honestly, um, my feeling is that we didn't, that we supported Michael in the best way to realize his vision for the project and this, the vision that he and Stephen, the WAG and the, and the circle had. So I guess the short, the short answer is I hope that we, that we didn't. I hope that we were able to realize it in a really meaningful way. You talked a little bit about skylights and humidity and issues of potential, you know, if the humidity was higher, you'd have condensation on the skylights. Those were things that he might not have known? Didn't know. It's not his, his job. That was our job to, to support him, right? So the best way to describe it here is our, our job here is to never say no. It's never to say no. It absolutely isn't, right? It's to say, here's the way that we can make it happen for you. Here's different ways that can unfold. And let's together with the construction manager, with our engineers, find the one that works with the budget, the schedule, and, but in all ways maintains the vision. Herb, what role did you play in the back and forth between Maltzen's firm and Sibinal Architecture? I think you've kind of enunciated a kind of diagram of accountability and responsibility. So we, uh, th three of the building committee members, including myself, were also members of the Board of Governors. And then we brought people in to supplement that. We were an extension of the Board of Governors, and it was our job to report at the bi-monthly meetings and to keep them posted on what was going on through our chair. It's about communication. I think I was chosen in part because I was kind of a free agent. I mean, I, I wasn't representing another architectural practice of significant scale. This idea of being so slightly arm's length from the firms was an important aspect to what I was doing. You know, it turned out that in 1996, I played hockey against Michael Maltzen and his chief administrator, Tim Williams, at, in Montreal, when Frank Gehry had been asked to lecture at the school. And he said, I'll come to Montreal to lecture at the school on the condition that I bring my staff in the form of a hockey team. So they arrived with both black and white uh, jerseys in, in the LA Kings um, sort of diagram. And we, we had a game against them. Frank played briefly, he just skated around in the middle of the ice and the architecture students gave him a bent hockey stick as a gift. So we also had to build a bit of a relationship with, you know, arguably perfect strangers in LA. And I say Frank Gehry because Michael Maltzen and Tim were really important figures in Frank Gehry's firm. Michael was the project architect for the Disney Concert Hall as a representative of Frank Gehry's firm. And it was Tim Williams um, who led the project out of the office. I said, you know, rumor has it that Frank's office always just hired hockey players. He said, I can tell you, as the person who hired all of their model builders, that that's absolutely true. If you played in the Western Canadian Hockey League, you know, you are bound for glory. <laughs> so you can see what I mean, right? It's, I'm, and I'm discussing this not in terms of, partially in terms of roles and responsibilities. Uh, and there is a kind of duty that a board of governors uh, takes on upon their shoulders in terms of managing such huge funds and such a dramatic project that, 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 is, that has such an incredibly high civic profile. But on, on the other side, there has to be, a, a, let's say, a meeting of the minds. And I think across the board, there were a number of, let's say, tense moments uh, to because to consolidate everyone's desires 
the time schedule, the contractor's demands, the, let's say, the morphing of the project over time, the slight shifting of the ideals, there's inevitable kind of discussions that are heartfelt because everybody's working to the same end of an excellent project. I think it ends up being a very human collaboration. So the building is, is a kind of expression a leading design thinker, but also working in the background is a kind of instrument of consensus, which absorbed so many factors. It was, the whole project was new to Michael and Sidnell's office. It was new to Michael Maltzen, who'd never really been to the Arctic before. And it was new to every single member of the committee and every board member. It's a project of first principles. And I think Michael put it beautifully just a few minutes ago. They had to reinvent their way of thinking with every single detail and every new component. And I think the board had to do that. And indeed, probably the fundraisers and the politicians and everybody involved has had to understand that this was a different project. This was unusual. I have to ask, Herb, were you and Michael Malson on the same team or were you on... He was on Frank Gehry's team, right? No, we played against each other. And everyone's wondering who won. Uh, Frank's did. He had a couple of former NHLers there. And Guy Carboneau and uh, Brett Hull came to watch the game because St. Louis was playing the Montreal Canadiens that night. So, no, there's no question that, that we did not win. Did you <laughs> score any goals? No, 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 no. Michael Robertson, what would be the most challenging part of the new building at the WAG that we as ordinary people can't see. We, we look at it and say, my goodness, that is a beautiful, stunning building, so complete, so perfect. What was the challenging part of that building? Oh, so I have to pick one? Well, you could give me more if you wish. I'll start with the, the one no one ever sees, and that was where the IAC were, Hamayok, uh, I don't know if I say it yet, I'm saying it right yet, but where it sits now was actually on top of the old mechanical electrical plant for the Winnipeg Arc Rally, which is 50 years old. There was a, a major project to consolidate and relocate and update the mechanical and electrical systems of the Winnipeg Arc Gallery in order to A, update some much older generation equipment, uh, and to B, prepare for the construction of the new building. So there's a massive undertaking because we had to maintain the art gallery in operation the entire time, with the exception of some small shutdowns for turning over systems, and making sure that we anticipate the turning on of the Inuit Art Center four years down the line. That was really quite a difficult project to manage that no one will ever, ever see, but we think it managed pretty well. That was a big one. That was a big mm -hmm. one. It was almost a quarter of the project, I think. Herb, what were some of the most challenging things for you in the years that you were involved in this project? It's eight and a half now, I think. I think I spoke to the board on about three or four critical occasions where some aspect of the design seemed to me to be under threat or, or some aspect of the design had to be kind of explained to a, a board that was generally beyond some private interests here and there, removed from the world of architecture. My position was to vouch for the veracity of the design drawings. I once asked Michael to send me in the entire set of working drawings, and I read them literally as one reads a novel from beginning to end. I knew the project, but I hadn't really seen 
the origin of all the arcs and curves of the facade, for example, in the working drawings, you see everything. It's the secret code. It's the code that disappears when the building is built, but it's the necessary instrument to get the building built. Our members of the Board of Governors would not have been able to understand what those were. I don't think it's a language unto ourselves in a way. And so I spoke about it and I talked about this is a fantastic movie of Daniel Day-Lewis played the fashion designer. Oh yeah, I've seen it. Fa phantom Thread. And I talked about the Phantom Threads that were embedded in this project, which would be forever invisible, but completely necessary. And also completely necessary, not just to the construction, but to the meaning of the building, to the intention of the building. The second thing I did was, without fail, really, was to enunciate the, the really intense work that Stephen was doing. I was certainly an advocate for him, on the other hand, dealing with such a complex uh, set of issues. So I think maybe the complexity of the building was something that I was fully aware of from, let's say, both sides of the, the equation. So I really, I really felt that what he was doing was a kind of tour de force in, in managing the, this project. Have you two been practicing your Inuktitut and your Ojibwe so you can pronounce the indigenous names of the building? I just got that text uh, a very short while ago. Uh, but I, this is Herb speaking. Um, but uh, the, the translation means it is bright, it is lit. So in really those, those 21 skylights that bring the light in are, um, have turned out to be, let's say, the essence of the project. And I'm always keen to understand language as a means of expressing desire. And that's what we see here. We, we would never say it is bright. We don't have the, the nomenclature to define light in a particular way. And so it's really rich to see these translations happening. It's, it's, I think it's totally an unexpected um, lesson. Michael Robertson, you have an Indigenous background yourself, right? Yes, that's right in Creek. The additional name for the center is also an Ojibwe name. Can you pronounce it for us? <laughs> I absolutely cannot. <laughs> I'm, I am hopeless, whether it's uh, whatever language it is. So you haven't given it a name in Cree then either, right? No, no, I don't speak Cree. I, I, uh, I barely learned English. Shall we practice together, the three of us, in pronouncing these names? Because I've been reading the material and the WAG has quite a nice website in which they have a woman speaking the names in the languages, in inuktitutes, with that glottal stop in the back of the throat for the inuktitut name. And the one for the Ojibwe name, if I have it right, is... Bindigan Bewaseya. Bindigan Bewaseya. Bindigan Bewaseya. How does that sound to you guys? Bewaseya? Haumayok? Did I get that? Haumayok? Yeah, that's right. Haumayok. And then Bindigan Bewaseya. It's not as if I'm expert enough to teach this, but... Bindigan Bewaseya? I'm sure that there are lots of people in the city Ojibwe speakers who can help us with this and the people at the new gallery will help us to understand this better. So they will be a significant presence there. 
I have a lot of clients in this city who are Ojibwe and they're gonna they're really gonna get after me. <laughs> I sent this email to my students and I gave them a bit of a description of, of the origins of this fascination with light and the and the title. And then I asked them, they're just at the intermediate stage of their work. Uh, I explained in this email that the naming of your project in, in this this kind of almost sacred sense is a crucial part of of developing your idea. We used to call it a concept, I guess. You have to have a, stra- a strategy that with an intellectual underpinning. But I, I love the idea of naming it. And so I, I actually presented my, all of my students with a name for their project as a kind of gift. And it has to do with clarity. And I think the community that has been advising the council of uh, advisors that have been working with Stephen on this project have been very close to the project. That should that can't be understated. It's been a very real representation. So their imagination and their vision is sort of deeply set into the bones and the mortar of the, the new gallery. When I was putting up the first episode of the podcast about the Inuit Art Center, I named the episode Mamuktuk, which in Inuktitut means delicious which I discovered uh, personally by serving a meal to an Inuit family in Saint Louis in Arctic Quebec in Nunavik when we lived there. And uh, the father of the family with all the kids in the room said to us after we served the meal, Mamaktuk, Mamaktuk Marelik, which means that's really delicious. (laughs) Is there anything that I failed to ask that you were thinking, ruminating on that you wanted to tell us? Do you, do you want me to start, Michael? Sure. Yeah. Give me time to think. You know, the, for me, process is everything. We always ask students to express their, um, their way of thinking. And the portfolio that they hand in at the end of a year's work is, is not just the final project. It's a record of all of the decisions and all the experiments made through the process. And for me, as a, you know, encompassing about almost a third of my professional career, if you think about it, the project has been an experience. We've yet to see the building fully occupied and coming alive in the way that we imagined. And I always like to think, say that designers can see the future. We anticipate, we have a premonition. We were prophetic because we have to deliver ideas long before they come to fruition. And so for, for me, the process has been wonderful. I've been asked to tour the building on a number of occasions throughout the process. And we've had students out also to look at the bones of the building. Normally what I do is I just start taking pictures and I, I completely go into another space. Like I, I, I ignore the, the whoever's leading, what my colleagues are saying, the questions. I know that this is a rare opportunity to document the project before it's all wrapped up in its finished materials. One of the highlights for me was being kind of an eyewitness on the entire process. Michael, your final thoughts. It's easy to get lost in in the beauty of the architecture and the arts, but I think the thing to keep in mind is how important those pieces are to the whole idea of connecting people in Southern Canada, in Winnipeg, in Manitoba, to the Inuits, to the North. I worry that we lose sight of this whole portion of the country, all these people that are Canadians and and part of what we should be doing going forward to be a better country and to keep in mind 
how important this process of reconciliation is. And in so many ways, this building is part of that process. To have this piece that's so beautiful to remind us of human people of, of our Arctic, I think that's the part that maybe is the most important thing. That's not maybe, it for sure is. And that's the spirit of the project. That's why everyone's so passionate about it and passionate about realizing it in the best way. That's why we're here. Michael Robertson of Winnipeg Sibinel Architecture is the architect of record of the soon-to-open Haumayuk. Professor Herb Enns of the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Architecture was part of the committee that evaluated the 64 entries from around the world in the design competition for Haumayuk. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to practice your pronunciation of the museum's names in Inuktitut and Ojibwe, head to wag.ca, where they have the pronunciation guides and much more, including some amazing photos of Hamayok inside and out. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, just hunt for Prairie D Lab or search for us on Facebook. We can be heard on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Terry McLeod, host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. <laughs>